Okay, welcome to the show. This week we'll begin with another installment of J.P. Mack's Dystopic Journal. You can't talk about dystopias without covering the one envisioned by Anne Rand all the way back in 1957 in her book Atlas Shrugged. The world of today echoes the world she created over 65 years ago. So, spoiler alert for those of you who haven't read either the book, uh, Atlas Shrugged, it's over a thousand pages long, or watched the movies, uh, Atlas Shrugged is a series of movies, it's a, a trilogy of movies based upon the books. It's uh, a passable representation, I think, of the movies, so... I mean, if you don't have the time or the inclination to read a book that's over a thousand pages long, then, you know, watching the DVDs, um, pretty much just as good. But, um, you know, some of the things are condensed, and, you know, some of the things are cut out for time, uh, like uh, John Galt's speech at uh, towards the end of the story that we're going to go into today. A lot of that has been cut from the movie. Um, oh, Anne Rand insisted on keeping that that uh, part, that monologue, uh, done by her character John Galt. Again, we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, in the movie. Um, well, in the book, um, she insisted that the book be printed as is, including. Uh, John Galt's speech, which runs about f 50 pages or so, um, I think like 52 pages, of uh, basically straight monologue uh, by the character, one of the main characters, John Galt, at least in the third part of the book. He doesn't really show up too much in the f either of the um, first parts of the book or in the first two movies. but. He does have a long uh, expository soliloquy uh, towards the end of the story. And so that's what I want to go over today. In Atlas Shrugged, Anne Rand wrote possibly her most iconic passage of fiction. It is In it, a mysterious figure comes out of the shadows after withdrawing from public life some 12 years earlier. During those 12 years of self-imposed exile, he formed his own community of talented, like-minded people. He enticed to go on strike with, from an ungrateful society, consumed with taking their achievements for their own. As a result of the strike, depriving society of the inventors and entrepreneurs who made it run, the world has fallen into a state of disrepair and despair. Near the end of the story, Galt returns to explain his actions in this famous monologue known to us as This is John Galt Speaking. One of the chief themes of Galt's speech is the idea that society had begun to hold sacrifice as its highest virtue, but Galt points out that in society's twisted morality, Society's concept of sacrifice was not that of noble self-sacrifice, it was responding to the demands of others that was held as a virtue. Virtue in this 
fallen system was to accede to the demands of others, even to the point of going against one's own best self-interest. This virtue of sacrifice stemmed from, or perhaps caused, a widespread sense of entitlement. People had started to believe that they were entitled to the efforts of others. And so, here's a, uh, a quote from the book um, uh, where this is John Galt speaking in this quote. You have heard it said that this is an age of moral crisis. You have said it yourself, half in fear, half in hope that the words had no meaning. You have cried that man's sins are destroying the world and you have cursed human nature for its unwillingness to practice the virtues you demanded. Since virtue to you consists of sacrifice, you have demanded more sacrifice at every successive disaster. In the name of a return to morality, you have sacrificed all those evils which you held up as the cause of your plight. You have sacrificed justice to mercy. You have sacrificed independence to unity. You have sacrificed reason to faith. You have sacrificed wealth to need. You have sacrificed self-esteem to self-denial. You have sacrificed happiness to duty. And those are the words of John Galt, part of his speech. We live in a world where countries have been convinced to sacrifice large portions of their economy, particularly in the energy and agricultural sectors. Over the past few decades, Germany has invested in renewable fuels such as wind and solar. Now, with war in Eastern Europe, it's lost a large supply of gas and oil. It and other countries will struggle to make up the difference and renewables will not be enough. Sri Lanka was convinced to undertake self-destructive economic measures in the name of achieving a high environmental, social, and governance ESG score. It took out loans it could never repay and demanded its agricultural sector be cut to the point that its people were going hungry. Other countries have followed Sri Lanka down this path. The Netherlands is deliberately regulating nearly a third of its farms out of business. Canada is acting in a similar fashion. Countries are practicing self-immolation in the name of the greater good. And so this is part of the sacrifice that uh, Galt is talking about here. Um, we're hearing it um, being expressed in our real-world environment where these countries are being uh, asked to sacrifice their agricultural sectors, their sources of dependable energy, uh, the comfort of their citizens, and sometimes even the lives and well-beings of their citizens, uh, in order to sacrifice for their their uh, climate change agenda. You know, at the they're sacrificing your livelihood and lives and the lives of farmers and coal miners at the altar of uh, climate change. And so so we can see that um, Anne Rand was was correct here where she she saw 
that the uh, the left, the elite, um, as as they became later to be known, you know, we know them as left now. She would call them as uh, probably collectivists or socialists or something like that. But we now refer to them collectively as the left. The left has developed this culture where I expect you to sacrifice your good. It doesn't matter if it's asking you to stay home for several weeks during a pandemic. It doesn't matter if it's requiring your kid to wear a mask against their own uh, best interest, against their own health interests and developmental interests. Uh, it's asking you to sacrifice your kids in order to further their agenda, to beef up what I believe is their power base, their, to, to establish their control over us. So they've asked all of these sacrifices in recent years in particular. Now, of course, in the na name of climate change, they're continuing on. They've gone from one crisis to another, as we'll, um, as they talked about here, um, where it says, where he says, um, since virtue to you consists of sacrifice, you have demanded more sacrifices at every successive disaster. And so that's what happened. You know, they asked us to sacrifice in the name of the environment. Then COVID came along and then they asked us to sacrifice more uh, in the name of fixing that disaster. And now that that disaster is, is largely over and done with. Now they're moving back into climate change, um, but even more so. And so they're asking us to, to sacrifice even more and more. And of course, there's the war now in Eastern Europe with, uh, you know, between Ukraine and Russia. We're being asked to sacrifice uh, on behalf of Ukraine, which is being which is seen as being in the right in this case, um, and arguably so, um, I, I have to say, but still we're being asked to sacrifice in their name because obviously, um, we can talk about this, is the global elites uh, see something in what Ukraine is doing and, and how Russia was kind of upsetting the apple cart. And so that kind of drew the ear and condemnation of, you know, the rest of the world. And again, these are for reasons both good, but some maybe not so good. Because after all, you know, there, there's corruption in both countries. Um, has been for a while. It's a, been a problem for a while. But we've only been asked to condemn one of the countries. And now Europe is sacrificing in the name of Ukraine and again you know we can argue whether it's worthwhile or not I think largely it is but I think uh, we will come to find in the fullness of time that the global elites have other agendas and uh, what Russia was doing didn't fit into that agenda which was uh, enriching them and empowering them uh, in the rest of the world and so you you have a situation there where there is yes there's a clear aggressor but also um 
there's uh, there's more forces than are what are obvious to the casual observer with regards to Russia and Ukraine. But I didn't talk, I didn't uh, have this. Um, you know, we can talk about the merits of supporting Ukraine um, at a later time. So, but suffice to say that that's part of the sacrifice of the greater good that we're being asked to make, and particularly Europeans. They're being uh, asked to sacrifice their supply of heating oil, as we will, we will talk about a little bit later. Um, so, so we live in a world where countries have been convinced to sacrifice large portions of their economy, particularly in the energy and agricultural sectors. Over the past few decades, Germany has invested in renewable fuels such as wind and solar. Now, with war in Eastern Europe, is lost a large supply of gas and oil. It and other countries will struggle to make up the difference, and renewables will not be enough. Sri Lanka was convinced to undertake self-destructive economic measures in the name of achieving a high environmental, social, and government's ESG score. It took out loans it could never repay and decimated its agricultural sector to the point that its people were going hungry. Other countries have followed Sri Lanka down this path. The Netherlands is deliberately regulating nearly a third of its farms out of business. Canada is acting in a similar fashion. Countries are practicing self-immolation in the name of the greater good. So continuing on with John Galt's speech, he says, Since life requires a specific course of action, any other course will destroy it. A being who does not hold his own life as the motive and goal of his actions is acting on the motive and standard of death. Such a being is a metaphysical monstrosity, struggling to oppose, negate, and contradict the fact of his own existence, running blindly amok on a trail of destruction capable of nothing but pain. Happiness is the successful state of life. Pain is an agent of death. Happiness is that state of consciousness which proceeds from the achievement of one's values. A morality that dares to tell you to find happiness in the renunciation of your happiness to value the failure of your values is an insolent negation of morality. A doctrine that gives you, as an ideal, the role of a sacrificial animal seeking slaughter on the altar of others is giving you death as your standard. By the grace of reality and the nature of life, man, every man, is an end in himself. He exists for his own sake, and the achievement of his own happiness is the highest moral purpose. And so again, uh, he's talking about uh, people being asked to sacrifice their own uh, better self-interest on the the uh, altar of what we would call these uh, leftist causes, such as uh, 
climate change alarmism and uh, things of that nature um, you know um, ESG and um, CRT and all of those uh, destructive ideologies that maybe you've heard me talk about before um, these all play into the notion that certain people are owed and it's a duty for other people to sacrifice their own lives and livelihood for others and usually those others are the ones coincidentally uh, who are in charge or who are seeking power and well I'm going to talk about that right now um, the global elite would not agree with John Galt here they say that a man's highest purpose is to serve his fellow man they say that but their policies, when put into practice, serve mainly them. These oligarchs and technocrats ask the Dutch farmer, the Canadian trucker, and the West Virginian coal miner to sacrifice their livelihoods for the good of their fellow man. They call the American that wants to be comfortable in their home during the summer as selfish, as they will call the European who wishes to be warm in their home during the winter selfish as well. Far from Galt's words, the words of globalists such as Klaus Schwab are, you will own nothing and be happy. And that are indeed, those, those are indeed the words, um, paraphrasing Klaus Schwab here and others, of his ilk. And they expect us to sacrifice our live livelihoods and our happiness for them and they claim that they we will they will we will own nothing and be happy well that means that they will own everything and be happier and on top of that uh, richer and so what a lot of us fear with this uh, globalist agenda such as we see in the um, World Economic Forum or the World Monetary Fund um, and the UN are the idea of people being asked to subordinate themselves to um, some greater cause, some greater cause that they have established for themselves but coincidentally everything every sacrifice you make benefits them financially and otherwise in uh, with regards to achieving their power that they seek and so that's what we fear we fear that well it's conservatives and libertarians that one that the larger the government the smaller the individual but also we can also add to that the larger the governmental or non-governmental or globalist concerns that place themselves above us the smaller the the individual and so it also we have to start thinking in those terms as well not just government but also in terms of the whole uh, globe that they put themselves up here they make themselves larger in importance to themselves and us the individuals smaller and they give us less and less power now if 
you're a student of history, you may remember that we had a system such as this before. It was done in the Middle Ages and up until um, the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. It was called serfdom. And what the serf did is he basically owned nothing. His master, the baron or, or whoever it was, the king, owned everything. And the duty of the serf was to provide the king or the baron or those above him with riches and subsistence. And meanwhile, they really did not own anything. They really had no possessions. They did not own the means of production, and therefore they not, did not own the means to control and better their own lives and become equals and peers with the kings and queens and the barons, etc. Now, under our our system of free market capitalism, imperfect though it is, it gives us one a chance, at least a chance, of becoming the peers with those uh, industrial giants that exist. It, it gives us at least a chance of rising up to the ranks if we're good enough and we're smart enough, we have a good enough idea, and maybe we have a little bit of luck on top of that. Um, we can become the equals, the peers, through our effort and with the uh, cooperation of others, um, equal those uh, those millionaires and billionaires that we see uh, gives us a chance. Now, obviously, not everybody can do that. Not uh, you know, but it gives you the chance. When you're a serf, you had no ability to improve your own lot. You had your 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 piece of land that you were. Uh, uh, expected to produce a certain amount of grain or other goods from every year and you were uh, expected to give over a certain amount of your production every year for that baron, for that that uh, king or queen or whoever was in charge in the system of serfdom. And, and now what we have is a kind of recreation kind of a neo-serfdom if you will and that is what is being established but now they won't have noble titles per se they'll have CEO and owner and um, you know prime minister uh, that sort of thing so they the titles will change but basically the roles will remain basically the same that we produce, we're given just enough to survive and create the next generation of producers producing them with wealth. And while it's fair, I mean, that is truth to tell um, the way it is kind of now, under this system, that will really solidify and codify those tiers. And eventually you'll basically have a tier, two tier systems of the masters or the barons and the serfs. You'll have the serf class uh, that serve them and their only purpose in life really is to keep those uh, with power in power and that is uh, what we're afraid of and will happen and it looks like we will um, 
we have our work cut out for us for if we don't wish it to happen we have to call attention to the problems with the system that they're trying to foist upon us and so there it is uh, Anne Rand over 65 years ago now uh, predicted this and we've continued on this course as she predicted she, she had the date slightly off I think you know it was originally it she thought that it would happen by 2016 while well, she was off by a few years and a little few of the details are missing but basically um, I said you know, go ahead read Atlas Shrug it's a good book it's a long book or watch the movies um, kind of the same idea if you watch the movies um, but educate yourself and, and see it and watch it and I remember re-watching the movies just a few weeks ago and, th and thinking, well, the thinking that she has, you know, she has her characters who are these leaders that are cooking up these plans to take over power for themselves and build uh, power for themselves um, and get people to act outside their own best interest. And so she's, in a number of scenes in her book and in the movies, they, you know they're in this room you know they're gathered together and they're they're hashing out their plans for for each other and for the people that are working for them and for society and they 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 keep thinking and keep saying that everything is for the greater good when really it is just a series of power plays that enrich those at the top and so I'm thinking well those discussions, those uh, fictitious discussions that are held within the pages of the book or within the movies are must be exactly, I think it reflects exactly the kind of thinking and the mentality that people have when they go to Davos to attend the function at the World Economic Forum. Um, it's got to be the same exact mentality. I think, once again, um, uh, Anne Rand was a visionary. She saw this coming. She saw this kind of behavior, and lo and behold, we are still there's still people doing the same kind of behavior with the same kind of tragic results. And so, this is uh, some of the, one of the reasons why we read dystopic um, literature, and of course, this being the dystopic journal, you know, I have to talk about. Uh, and ran and particularly Alice shrugged and so I hope you this you found this interesting um, and I hope this gives you something to think of and there's so much more I think we're going to do a couple more installments on this subject and, and on her book particularly Alice shrugged so look forward to that uh, but in the meantime thank you for listening and watching and now we'll continue on with the rest of the Liberty Relearn podcast. All right, thanks.